Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful today for a church that focuses so much of its energy and its money on spreading the gospel around the world. Over the past number of years, we've done a great deal to refine and to hone our processes and even our goals and intentions. And you've blessed us with leadership that has a passion and a vision for how this congregation can be engaged in gospel ministry here and abroad. To the point that even today, several of our pastors and several members of the church are in Minneapolis in a seminar learning about cross-cultural ministry and how they can better challenge our congregation and engage us in such ministry. We pray your blessings upon them while they're gone. We pray your blessings upon us as we're gathered together today to hear from your word, to worship you in song, in prayer, and in devotion of our hearts. We pray that you will use our time together to honor your name, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am very privileged and very content to be able to preach to you this morning um, in the absence of Trent and Jason and several others. Um, This is actually Carrie and I's last uh, Sunday at Heritage. We, We started our ministry lives working with Hispanic people in uh, Tampa, Florida. It's a kind of a funny story how we accidentally planted a church, and um, it was Iglesia Bautista Jesus Salva. We spent almost 11 years in that ministry. Uh, we didn't know anything, but we learned an awful lot in the process. And now, all these years later, there's a church across town that has been sort of pestering me for a while to come and be engaged in their attempt to start a Spanish outreach. And they're part of the the area. There's really no other gospel-preaching church. Thankfully, there are many gospel-preaching churches here, right here in Greenville-Greer, but this is over towards Easley, and there's just not much. So after praying and thinking and discussing and talking to Trent and and others, we decided, yeah, this would be a great opportunity for us to kind of go back to our roots. So I'm saying that because when you don't see us, we don't want you to start thinking there's a problem. They're angry. They're, there's something we should know. Well, now you know the whole story. And uh, we're going with the blessing of, uh, of Pastor Trent and the elders and we, we really believe this will be a good opportunity for Carrie and I to minister shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, and in some ways, maybe get back some of the joy of those early years in the ministry. Today, we're going to talk about conflict. Wherever the gospel moves forward, there is conflict. There's conflict with false religion. There's conflict with uh, people and their sinful patterns of life. We know a lot about conflict. Our world is filled with conflict. I mean, think about Russia and Ukraine. Think about the Supreme Court vote uh, or decision about Supreme Court over in Israel and the protests in the streets. 
Think about France and their desire to change the age of retirement and how that led to massive uh, public protests for many weeks. Think about Democrats versus Republicans and all of the shenanigans and ugliness that goes on as we're leading up once again to an election cycle. We, we know about conflict. Sometimes there are conflicts in families. Sometimes, sometimes there are conflicts in churches or in schools. And sometimes the conflicts take place because we're facing the old and the new. Because there is forward movement of the gospel and maybe the old guard or the, the old part of the congregation, perhaps, doesn't like what's happening. They don't see it. It doesn't feel good to them. Well, that's really very much what's causing the conflict in Acts chapter 15. So I want to start, read, I just want to read through that passage so we have a sense of what's going on. And if you have your Bible, you can turn with me or you can follow and listen as I read. Uh, you can follow on the screen in Acts 15 verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia, uh, that would be modern-day Lebanon, and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. 
that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So you find here in Acts chapter 15 sort of the turning point, the, 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 the point in which sort of the roiling um, disagreements over the nature of Christianity come to a head. And it leads to what is really the first great church council. The, the, the elders and the apostles gathered in Jerusalem and listened to both sides and came to a decision. And that decision that they came to has affected all of us, all of the church, all of Christian history from that day forward. If they had come to a different conclusion, all of us who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation would also be Jewish. We would have to become proselytes to Judaism in order to be saved. That's what the discussion was about. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it take to become a Christian? And then James ends that discussion with some some implications, some applications, some prohibitions, some would call them, about the activities or lifestyle of the Gentiles. So you have issues about culture, but you also have major issues about doctrine. And those same issues are with us today. Those same areas of disagreement and areas of conflict pursue the church all the way down to 2023. Notice that with this conflict between the old and the new, this had been sort of boiling over for a long time. Think about the story of the church from the beginning to this moment. In Acts chapter 2, you have the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the apostles on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of Jewish people were saved. No Gentiles. They had different languages because they had come back from the diaspora, from various places, to celebrate the feast. But they were all Jewish. Early Christianity was 100% Jewish. Then the gospel in chapters um, uh, 3 through 7 of Acts, the gospel spreads very quickly through Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea. You have thousands of people coming to faith at one time in several occasions in those early chapters of Acts. In chapter 8 of Acts, the gospel spreads to Samaria. The people of Samaria worshipped a little differently. They were, they were not completely contrary to Jewishness, but they weren't Jewish. And now they're being converted. And that's a step forward. That's a change. And that caused some discussion and concern as well. In chapter 9 of Acts, Saul decides enough is enough. And he goes on a terrorist campaign, and he persecutes people, has people thrown in prison, seeks to have people killed for following Jesus. He wants to put a stop to this nascent movement. 
But then in chapter 10, uh, Peter is sent via a vision and some, a vision that, that he sees as well as a vision or an angel that came to a guy named Cornelius, a Gentile, a centurion, a Roman soldier over in Caesarea. And they come together and Peter proclaims the gospel and Cornelius and all of his household are converted. Gentiles. The first known Gentile to come to faith in the New Testament. Then, after that, you have uh, Gentile conversions taking place up in Antioch in chapter 11. In chapter 12, the very heart of Christianity is threatened down in Jerusalem as the government begins to persecute and even execute some of the leaders of the new movement. And then in chapter 13, that mixed Jewish-Gentile church up in Antioch sends out missionaries. Paul and Barnabas go out and begin to proclaim the gospel in Gentile regions. They proclaim the gospel to Jewish people, but they also proclaim the gospel to Gentile people. And everywhere they go is a primarily Gentile area. By the time you come to the end of Acts chapter 14, you find a a period of great success. Let me just read for you, to put it in context, the last several verses of Acts chapter 14. Then they, that is Paul and Barnabas, passed through Pisidia and came to um, Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. These are all the places they had been and been preaching the gospel. Now they're retracing their steps. And from there they sailed to Antioch, that's Syrian Antioch, where they had started out, uh, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they delivered all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So there's really great news. The gospel is spreading not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, not just to a few random Gentiles, but it's spreading everywhere. This is good. But there were some who thought it wasn't good. There were some who looked at that and said, wait just a minute. And it was a question about the nature of salvation. In chapter 15, again, verse 1, Some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, the Christians, there in Antioch, among whom were many Gentile converts, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is, unless you are Jewish first, you cannot be Christian. That's that's a monumental um, um, declaration. Now, stop and think about what they're saying and why they're saying it for literally thousands of years, not just a generation, not just a few decades or a century, but for thousands of years. In order to know God, in order to have a covenant relationship with God, it was necessary to be Jewish. That wasn't the Jewish people's idea. That was God's idea. God had declared that very clearly throughout the Old Testament. Salvation is of the Jews. And you have cases of people becoming Jewish in the Old Testament, joining into the family of Jews in order to follow God and in order to have a relationship with him. 
But all that changes in the new covenant. All that changes with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And yet, these people, they naturally cling to what is known to them, what has always been. It's been their entire lives and their parents' lives and their grandparents' lives and on and on and on for eons. It tells us further in verse 5 that some believers, these ones who are making the claim that you have to be Jewish in order to be Christian, some believers were uh, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. We know that Paul was an uber-Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. His father was a Pharisee before him. Phariseeism began several hundred years before the opening of the New Testament. It was a, it was a holiness movement. It was a movement in order to show your devotion in, uh, to the law and to the Old Testament. And it was, a, it was in, a, in general terms, it was a very good thing. But by the time Jesus comes along, it had replaced so much of its emphasis on the Scripture with his own set of traditions. And Paul had to wrestle with that. I mean, Paul goes on a terrorist campaign. He's so committed to his beliefs as a Pharisee. But apparently, Paul wasn't the only Pharisee who was converted. There were others. Paul had to come to, to reckon with the fact that now this mystery of the church that's being revealed and unfolding, this, this um, salvation through the, through the blood of Christ, the, the new covenant, the, the new relationship, he had come to embrace that wholeheartedly. But some of his brothers, some of his friends, some of the people who probably were his closest friends, now also believers in Jesus, they embraced him as Messiah, but they couldn't let go of the Jewish thing. They couldn't. And so they were demanding, in order to follow Jesus, in order to be a Christian, you must first be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. You have to become Jewish. I think it's somewhat understandable. It's somewhat understandable that, that they would take such a position. I mean, think about it. This is all they'd ever known. And they, they, had, they had Old Testament precedent on their side. So I think we should be at least a little bit sympathetic. It's far too easy for those of us who are part of the new, whatever the new is, to just write off those who are part of the old, to just dismiss. We shouldn't just dismiss these Pharisees. We should at least be empathetic to where they were coming from, why they were holding such positions. And for them, not only was the Old Testament law, the Old Testament revelation of supreme importance, and it should be, and it is, but they also had so entwined all of their culture, all of their traditions, all of their norms of life were wound up and bound up in that Old Testament way of thinking. Uh, in the ESV expository commentary on Acts, author Brian Vickers says this, they, referring to the converted Pharisees, argue that the Gentiles must become Jews in order to be welcomed as full members of the people of God. In the flow of redemptive history, the inclusion of Gentiles is earth-shattering, standing against centuries of tradition, and clearly hard to swallow in light of generations of Jewish suffering at the hands of Gentiles. Early Jewish believers have already 
had to come to terms with the Messiah as being a carpenter from Nazareth who took issue with much that they were brought up to believe. Now the Christian leaders are baptizing Gentiles, eating with them, living among them, and saying that all they have to do is believe. That's a lot to take in. So I think we can be at least understanding of what's going on. And yet, and yet, Gentiles are coming to faith without being circumcised, without Sabbath laws, without food laws, and they're clearly believing. They're clearly manifesting that the Holy Spirit has come and indwelled them, just like he has done with Jewish believers. And so the whole thing kind of comes to a boiling point. And as it says in um, verse uh, 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Have you ever been in a room with a group of Middle Easterners and they get into a disagreement? I mean, it's not a calm conversation across the table. It's knock down, drag out, raise your voice, all kinds of gesticulations. I mean, this must have been quite the sight to behold. And it's almost to our ears, tongue in cheek, that the writer Luke says, they had no small dissension. Oh, I believe that. That must have been quite a sight. So the church in Antioch says, we need to get an answer for this. Let's go down and let's have a discussion. Let's have um, a council with the church in Jerusalem, with the, with the apostles, with the elders. And let's figure this out. So they do. And that takes us then to the second part, which is the church's deliberation. And the church deliberates based on experience as well as Scripture. Not necessarily just one or the other, but both. Let's see how that plays out again, looking at the passage. Um, They gathered in verse 6 to consider this matter. And there is, again, much uh, debate. Then uh, Peter stands up, and he basically reminds them of the Cornelius story. He tells them, you know, I'm just hanging out in Joppa, doing my thing, minding my own business, and all of a sudden I have this funky vision. This sheet comes down from heaven with every kind of creepy crawler you can possibly imagine, and an angel says, Peter, kill it and eat it. And Peter's like, "Uh, you know I'm kosher. Like, I have never, never have I ever, and no. And it takes three times for this vision for Peter to think, okay, something's going on. Just as he's kind of coming out of the trance or vision or whatever it was, there's a knock at the door. Peter's up on the roof. He's taking a siesta. And there's a knock at the door. And here are messengers from a Gentile centurion from Caesarea. And they say, uh, is there a guy here named Peter? Well, it just so happens there is. You know, our, our, uh, our commander, uh, I know this is going to sound weird, but, but an angel came to him and said, um, I hear you when you pray. And, and I want you to go to Joppa and find this guy 
named Peter and bring him over here. He's going to give you a message. I mean, I mean that must, everybody's kind of like, what? I mean, this is just weird, right? So Peter's like, hmm, I wonder if that has something to do with that vision. <laughs> Maybe. So he, off they go. There's a group of Jewish people that go. They go over. And Cornelius has gathered everybody he knows. I mean, he's a big guy. He's an important guy. He's got his household servants. He's got his own family, perhaps. He's got his own uh, group of soldiers. And he's got everybody gathered. And he's like, wait, this is, this is going to be important. And Peter comes in. He looks around. And he, Peter had never gone once in his life into a Gentile home. Never. He had never eaten at the table with a Gentile, ever, not one time. And now, under the leadership of God, here he is standing there and he gives a simple, basic God. He tells the Jesus story. And while he's talking, the Spirit of God falls on them and they all start speaking in tongues. Now, don't get caught up with the speaking in tongues thing. That was a sign for Jewish people to know This is really the real deal. This is really a God thing. And so you've got this group of Jews who had traveled from Joppa, and this is God's way of saying, I'm doing this. And so Peter's testimony at the Jewish council, the Jerusalem council is, wasn't me. I didn't come up with this. This was a God thing. I, 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 I was just there. And so his experience is a very powerful indicator that something is happening that's different from the past. Peter goes on to explain a little bit about the circumstances. And he says in, um, in verse uh, 9, Why are you putting God to the test by planting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither we or our fathers have been able to, to, to bear? In other words, you're... These, these, these uh, Pharisee party Jewish people that are expecting Gentiles to become Jewish in order to be saved, what you're doing is you're expecting God to do for them what he's not even done for us. We don't somehow supernaturally have ability to keep the law. We've been failing for 2,000 years. And now you're saying they have to do it too? You're tempting God. You're putting a yoke, a burden on, on these Gentile believers that God never intended. Peter's very forceful in his declaration. And then he goes on to say what I think is probably one of the most grace-filled statements in all of the New Testament. He says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You say, why is that grace-filled? Because Peter is the guy who had to be beaten over the head to get him to go and talk to a Gentile. Peter's the guy who said, I don't go with Gentiles. In spite of all that Jesus had taught him, in spite of the great commission to go into all the world, Peter wasn't getting it. And it took God really kind of forcing him into a situation that he didn't anticipate. But now, some years later, not only is Peter welcoming the salvation of Gentiles, but what Peter is actually saying here is, we get to be saved like they do. He doesn't say what we would expect Peter to say, yeah, I guess we just have to accept the fact that God's opening the back door for them. That's not what he says. He says, God lets us be saved. The covenant people of God, the people who have always thought we had an edge on the rest of the world, God lets us be saved just like them. That's gospel humility. 
that's gospel awareness. That's an understanding that this never had anything to do with me. This was never about my power or my wisdom or my law-keeping or my ability to somehow outshine the person next to me. This is all about grace. This is all about the goodness and mercy of God. And we get to be partakers of this, just like our Gentile brothers. It's a beautiful thing. Well, then, Barnabas and Paul get up, and they tell stories. Don't you like a good story? Everybody likes to be around somebody who's a good storyteller. They have a way of just laying it out and keeping you maybe on edge, and you want to hear, how does this end? Well, Paul and Barnabas, they got up and they told stories. They told stories about this guy named Sergius Paulus down in, um, in um, my mind just went blank, the first place they went as they left Antioch, who was converted and in, in, Cyp- in uh, uh, Cyprus. And he was converted. He was the governor of the island, and he came to faith. And, and, and he, was, he, was a, I mean, he was a raw pagan. He was everything a Roman governor you would expect him to be in terms of his religious values. And he comes to faith. And then they tell the story about how in Pisidian Antioch, they went into the synagogue and gave the gospel, and it was mostly Gentiles. The, the people who were there, they were kind of checking out Jewishness, but they weren't quite ready to commit. You know, they weren't going to become Jewish. The whole circumcision and, you know, the dietary rules and all, it was a bit too much to swallow, no pun intended. And so they, 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 they were there, but they, they weren't all in. And Paul and Barnabas come and preach the gospel, and they're like, okay, now we're all in. They tell those stories. And everywhere they go, there are people coming to faith. And they go to this little town called Lystra, and Paul heals a guy who's never walked once in his life because his feet are somehow lame, they're, they're broken. And the people there thought that they were gods come down from heaven. And they're trying to offer sacrifice. And so Paul preached to them about the creator God. And, but, but, but some Jewish people came up from Iconium and stirred up the crowd, and they stoned Paul and left him for dead. And they're telling all these stories, and people, people are like, wow. And they're hearing all this. And it's amazing. God is on the move. Aslan is awake if you're, you know, a C.S. Lewis fan. And, and, and this, is, this is monumental. And they tell these stories. So they've got, they've got the experiences. They're there. They're real. And then James gets up to speak. And in verse... Um, Let's see, verse 12, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Apparently James is in charge of the meeting. <clears throat> you say, not, why not Peter? Because he actually wasn't the first pope. Um, and because probably Peter had to be careful because um, the government was always trying to kill him. So he probably came for this meeting. But James had been running the show in Peter's absence. That's the best explanation, I think. But anyway, James says, he's leading the the council. He's the pastor in Jerusalem. And he says, um, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he quotes then from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, 
and probably also a phrase or so from Isaiah 43. And what James is doing is saying, this is what the prophets were looking forward to all along. We sang about that. The longed-for Messiah would appear. And, and he would come and set people free. But not just the people of Israel. Oh, no, no, no. He was going to come and set everybody free. And the Gentiles would pour into the family of God. And this is what we're seeing. And this is good. And it's very helpful for us to understand that what's taking place here is not some conflict between experience and Scripture. I was indoctrinated in a system that says experience is always bad. Experience is always so tenable. It's so uncertain. Don't put any confidence in your experience. And, and, and I can understand that because that's kind of a reaction against some craziness that came about during my lifetime with experience-based Christianity. But what's happening here is they're, they're, they're looking at Scripture, they're looking at what has been promised and prophesied through the lens with the help of experience. And oftentimes, when we see God at work, and it creates some tension with what we expected or with what we we have always just said, this is how it is, sometimes that experience actually can help us to go back and look at the Scripture again and say, maybe, just maybe, we're not reading this exactly right. One of the great privileges of my life has been to teach or to minister in a number of different countries. I was in Togo earlier this summer. And so you start talking about a Bible doctrine or a passage, and you say, okay, here, Togolese pastors, men that truly love the Scripture and love God, how do you see this? And to hear maybe a very different perspective. Not, in con- not like they have a whole different doctrine. Oh, we're just throwing... No, no, no. But their, their experience, their background, their life has enabled them to read that passage and understand that truth from a different vantage point. And that's one of the great blessings of experience. It, it allows us to... To, to evaluate how we've been interpreting and understanding. But at the end of the day, it is the Scripture that has authority. And James makes that very clear. Okay, we've heard from Peter, and yet we heard from Barnabas and Paul. And, and we've heard all the debate, and we've heard, but now the Scripture says, and it's done. This is it. And that's right, and that's as it should be. We must never allow our willingness to evaluate our understanding of Scripture through the lens of our experience overtake our commitment to the authority of Scripture itself. The Bible has final say over who we are and what we believe. And with just a word, James declares we're not going to burn the Gentiles. No. We're not going to mix law and grace. We're not going to mix human works with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So that's it. That's the decision. 
oh, down through time, people have still gotten this wrong. I mean, think of the Roman Catholic Church. I had a priest one time tell me, well, you know, you have to understand, son, it's like, this is when I was much younger, you have to understand, son, it's like, it's like you're in a boat with two oars. One oar is faith, and what Jesus has done in the other oar is works. I said, I'm not trying to row my way into heaven, brother. I am, I am totally trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and then you have groups like, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists who have a lot of gospel good, but then they want to always bring in the law and say it's all about the law and keeping the Sabbath and this and that. And some of us have been in those groups and we've seen uh, the effect of that. And uh, Carrie and I were out in um, Utah, in Salt Lake City a couple of years ago, did the, the, you know, go down to the, to the temple and get the, the they, were, they were renovating the temple, I think they still are, but, so we didn't get the full show, you know, but, but just interacting with some of the uh, Brigham Young students and hearing them explain Mormonism, and it's all about the Old Testament law, in and out, through and through, and it's just, it's a confusion of grace and law. But here, in the Jerusalem Council, James says, no. And ever since then, the answer is no. So we must be absolutely, as individuals, as a church, as families, absolutely 100% committed to the doctrinal truth that Jesus Christ saves sinners without the works of the law. I am 100% saved by grace. That is my only hope. And the gospel prevails wherever it goes because people hear and they've been trying so hard to keep God happy or to somehow find a way to bring peace and joy to their inner life and they find out there's a Savior who delivers because of grace. And so that decision is done. That decision is over. But then James does something very curious. He gives these three conditions, these three resolutions, these three, some might say, prohibitions, beginning in verse um, 20. He says, but we should write to the Gentiles and tell them to abstain from Four things, things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things that have been strangled, and from blood. And so, what do we do with that? There are four ways, or three ways primarily, that over the centuries people have understood and interpreted these verses. The first is that these are matters that go beyond Jewishness. These are matters of universal morality. And they'll try to tie what James says back to Noah and the Noahic covenant. And you can do that to some extent, but only with two of the four prohibitions. So it kind of breaks down. The second thought is that these were conditions that were given by Moses uh, in the law, in the book of Leviticus, specifically chapters 17 and 18, to say that uh, if, you wanna, if you're a Gentile and you want to come into the family of Judaism, you want to become a convert, then here's what you have to do. You, you, and there's all kinds of rules about sexual propriety, and there's food rules, and there's worship rules, and so forth. And so 
what some have said, in fact, a good many have said, is that James is saying, okay, look, you don't have to be circumcised and keep the law. You don't have to become Jewish, but you have to keep these Jewish things. The problem with that is it would have James speaking out of both sides of his mouth. It's kind of like, yes, but, or rather, no, but, and it's like James is trying to compromise, keep everybody happy. Look, you can never compromise doctrine and keep everybody happy because people are either going to accept truth as revealed by God or they're not. They're not. And so James, I don't think James is at all trying to somehow placate anybody and make other people happy. So I think what James is doing is what would be the third position and say these are matters of church unity and gospel advance. And I say that because if we start by looking at what um, James says in verse 21, in other words, after the prohibitions, he gives an explanation for his prohibitions in verse 21. He says, for, or because, from ancient generations, Moses which is sort of shorthand for Jewishness, Um, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, what is he saying? James is simply recognizing that everywhere you go, there are Jewish people, right? I mean, remember the day of Pentecost? And you got all these different people, Parthenians and uh, Cyrenians and, um, and all kinds of Alexandrians and all these different people, but they're all Jewish. And they all speak different languages. And they all are acculturated by the places where they've grown up, but they're Jewish. That's because all the way back in the Old Testament, when Israel and then Judah were taken captive uh, and, and, and by first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, all the way back in the 400s BC, 500s BC for, the, for, the, uh, uh, for Israel, they're taken away captive, and, and, and they, they were integrated. They became part of those cultures and economies. And so Babylon overtakes Assyria. Uh, Greece overtakes. Uh, the Medes and Persians overtake Babylon. The Greeks overtake. The Medes and Persians and the Romans overtake the Greeks. And, the, and those Jewish populations are still out there. And literally, this is why Paul, in his missionary journeys, he goes to a city and there's always a synagogue. Not always, but most of the time there's a synagogue. Why? Because there's Jewish people everywhere. And what James is saying is, look, let's put some strictures in place so that we can keep Jewish people, um, we, we, we can have the churches that are forming in these new areas of Gentiles, as well as some converted Jews who are seeing Jesus as the promised Messiah, where they can worship together, they can be comfortable together. And, and, and they can, they can uh, also, we can continue to preach the gospel in those areas, and there won't be barriers based on people's lifestyles that are going to cause people to turn away from the, from the, from the gospel. This is, this is quintessentially a missionary thing, right? So we have our missionary, let's say, uh, the Hansons over in China, in Changchun, or um, um, we have missionaries in um, Indonesia, Right? And, and so, and we say, you know, look, you go there, you become part of that culture, you reach people where they are, how you find them. But, but if those missionaries are over in those places and they're saying, look, in order to follow Jesus, you've got to be kind of like us. Or, or they're doing things that are very American, 
you know, they're waving the flag all the time, and, and they're kind of alienating people from the gospel because of their lifestyle or because of their priorities, that's not a good thing. So every missionary from the beginning of time has had to realize there's certain things I've got to kind of let go of if I'm going to be effective in reaching people in this region. I think that's all that James is saying here. You say, well, well how does that make sense? Let, let me bear with me just a moment to try to explain a little bit of this. Um, first of all, these four prohibitions have to rise and fall together. I don't think you can cherry pick. They're either all in place or, or they're not in place. And at least one of these prohibitions, we know that Paul himself comes back later and says, yeah, don't worry about that. The one about food offered to idols. In both Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, look, you know, food is food. I'm I'm very, very much paraphrasing here. But Paul says, yeah, you got that, right? Um, This is the vowels off the top of the head paraphrase. So, you know, food is food. Idols are nothing. Idols are people's vain imaginations. So when they offer their food to an idol, if you want to eat it, it's not going to hurt you. In fact, it's going to be discounted because it's used food. Literally, I mean, literally, that's how they, that's how they sold the food. It's, it's already been used. So you got a discount. But if, if the food is going to bother you, then don't eat it. If it's going to bother your brother, don't eat it. Don't make your brother stumble over your food. But the food itself is okay. So, so Paul is basically saying, yeah, you know that first prohibition? It's, it's relative. It's situational. So these can't be absolute for all time um, resolutions. So the food thing is pretty easy. By the way, I was, I was, I was with some students over at the, there's what's called a, um, what do they call it? It's not a full-blown temple. There's a Hindu worship site over in Simpsonville. Um, so I took some students over there. If you ever want to be, if, if you think my sermon is boring, go do the puja over in Simpsonville with the Hindus. In Sanskrit, for three hours. I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I done? These students are going to hate me. You know? But afterwards, we met a bunch of Hindus, and that's what, that was the whole point. So afterwards, the priest goes along, and he's been making offerings the whole time. He's got fruit, he's got bananas, he's got apples, he's got oranges. And afterwards, he comes back, and he picks up all the fruit, and he starts get, handing it to us. And the students are like, I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> Anything they don't want, I'll take it. Next morning in class, I said to the students, what did you do with that fruit? Oh, we threw that away. I said, you threw it away. You should have brought it to me. I ate it for breakfast. It was good. And they said, but, but it was offered to an idol. I said, so what? That's Paul's attitude. So what? Right? Okay. So you're with me on that one. The second one is a little bit, and, and frankly, frankly, um, the thing about eating blood and strangled, those two go together. Why didn't the Jewish people eat something strangled? Because number one, it might still be alive, and that's just gross. God said, we don't eat things with the life still in it. Okay. And they didn't eat blood because that was an Old Testament prohibition. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So there are still plenty of believers who say, don't ever eat blood. It's wrong. It's evil. I don't think you can do that necessarily. I don't think the scripture, because again, I think these resolutions rise and fall together. If they're relative to the time and place, the Jewishness then they're not necessarily in place for us today. I don't eat blood sausage or blood pudding because I just don't like it. 
But I had a very rare steak the other night, and it was really good. So I don't, I, I don't think these things apply to us today in the same way. Um, it's, it, it, if you can indulge me just a second, um, and I'm not, I know there's some Chinese people in our congregation, so please, please, please don't take this as pejorative or insulting to your culture, but we have to recognize that it's very different than ours. You know that. You know that better than any of us. And uh, so I've been in China a couple of times, and um, one time I was sitting here eating breakfast with some Chinese brothers. These are men that I would give my life for. I mean, these are men I so greatly admire for their faith and their, 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 their perseverance. And one of them looks at me and he says, uh, Brother Mark, for eating, what is your favorite insect? And I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't want to laugh. So I, well, I really don't have a favorite. They're all kind of the same to me. <laughs> Not good enough. Not good enough. Well, the cicada or the cricket or the worm, wh- which is your favorite? And I kind of took a deep breath and I said, Brother, Americans don't actually eat insects. And all of them were like, what? What? It's nutritious. It's abundant. It's free. And I said, yeah, well, so maybe we're just missing out. But <laughs> don't eat. And I told them, I said, look, I said, it's just difference in culture. So if you, if you move to America and you invite your neighbor over, don't serve them cicadas. I was in China one time, it was cicada season, and these folks were very, very, very generous and kind to me. We ate at restaurants three meals a day. I ate cicadas three times a day for a week. If I never eat another cicada as long as I live, I'll be a happy man. <laughs> they're not bad. They're cooked, they're kind of juicy, and they're kind of, um, they got a, got, anyway, I'll stop. But, <laughs> but it's not the worst thing that you can ever do. But I said, if you're, if you're in America and you invite your neighbor, don't serve bugs. Because they're going to be grossed out. They're going to think, Ooh. I think that's exactly what James is doing here. Stay away from foods that are strangled. Because when a Jewish person sees that, they're like, Ooh. Stay away from blood. Don't eat food in their presence offered to idols. Just don't do it. Just don't. Because it's going to freak them out. And they're going to say, if that's what the gospel is about, not me. Okay. So the hard one, though, is the one about sexual immorality. Is, is James actually saying, look, Gentiles, if there are Jews around, you, you shouldn't fornicate. I mean, do what you want. No, no, no. He's not saying that at all. Because it doesn't take the Jerusalem council to say fornication or immorality is wrong. The word that he uses here is actually a very broad word. It's, it's the Greek word porneia, which involves every kind of sexual deviance. You know, adultery, fornication, incest, bestiality, homosexuality. It's, a, it's all inclusive. And in Gentile society in that day, it was everywhere. You say, wow, you know, things are so bad in America, and you turn on TV, and it's just there. You have no idea compared to first century Rome. It was everywhere. It was part of their worship in many cases. And so for many of these Gentile believers, parts of their lifestyle, parts of what they took for granted, in the eyes, in the association of the Jewish people living among them, it was evil. It was, it was porneia. You say, okay, 
I'm having a hard time with that. Let me give you one other example from China. Uh, two weeks ago, my wife and I went down to this nice place on Haywood Road and had a Chinese foot massage. I love the Chinese foot massage. Chinese foot massage goes for about an hour, and they, they work over your feet and your lower legs to the point, at first it hurts like crazy, but by the time you're done, they're done, it's euphoric. And it's like, oh man, I'd do that every day if I had the money. In China, it cost me about 10 bucks. It costs a bit more than that here, so I'm not recommending everybody run out and do it. But a couple times a year, my wife and I will go. It's a treat. And so I had the foot massage every chance I got in China until one time I'm in Shanghai, walking down the street after eight days of sequestered teaching in a 51st-story apartment, and the brothers that were in charge, we were walking down the, the main shopping district in Shanghai, beautiful area, and uh, we had had some food, and we were just kind of walking around. And I said, so what are we doing for the next hour or so? They said, whatever you want. I said, I'm going to go into that place right there that has a sign for the foot massage, and I'm going to get a foot massage. Take about an hour. And every one of them looked at me and went, <gasps> and I said, uh, no, I'm just going to go and get a foot massage for an hour. And they went, <gasps> and I was totally confused. And, of course, because of honor and shame, they wouldn't tell me, what the, you know, can't tell the teacher what's wrong because that would make him feel bad. But finally I got him to say what was wrong. And they said, uh, teacher, foot massage is a place for the prostitution. And then I went, <gasps> you know, <laughs> because I'd gone to these places several times. And I, I mean, it no, nothing ever happened. And there was never even a proposal or a hint. And I don't know. To this day, I don't know. Was that these four or five guys? Was that a Shanghai thing? Was that that district thing? Was that, was that a universal thing? Was that, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody here who's Chinese knows. I don't know. But you know what I decided that day? Never again for the rest of my life will I ever get a foot massage in China. I'm not going to do it. I am not going to give the impression in the eyes of my brothers whom I love and who love me I'm fornicating. I'm not going to do that. I think that's what James is saying. Look, just stay away from stuff. If, if, it's, if it's got that taint, stay away. So all of this comes together, and you've got doctrinal clarity. The gospel is the gospel, not, the, the, not Jewishness, not the works of the law. It's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. But then you've got also these cultural issues, and James is saying, look, don't put up barriers to the gospel. Don't make it impossible to fellowship together. Don't make it so the Jewish people that are also believers don't want to come and eat at your dinner because you're doing this or you're, you know, you're serving food that's got blood in it or whatever. And, and also, don't do these things because you don't want only Gentiles to be saved. You want the Jewish people to be saved as well. The gospel is for all people. So what does all of this come down to? Well, simply... We must not place barriers to the gospel by adding doctrine or by the way we live. We, 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 we don't tell people, look, if you want to be saved, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to learn to speak Elizabethan English. But I know churches that do that. I saw a Facebook post yesterday. The churches that are not singing the old hymns are, are abandoning the faith. They're less than the old. They're the old, and they're afraid of the new. Well, there's nothing wrong with the old hymns, 
but so many of them are filled with Elizabethan English and people don't know what they're singing. It's just a reality. Um, if you don't dress with the best clothes you've ever had in your life on Sunday morning, you don't love Jesus. Well, it's really hard to sustain that from Scripture, but I know churches that hold that position, right? So you have old versus new. So don't put in the place of doctrine things that are not part of the gospel. And also, don't create cultural barriers that make it hard for people to come to faith. The gospel's hard as it is. The gospel for many, many people, especially in our society today, is just not plausible. So let's not put even further barriers in front of them by saying, unless you become like me, you cannot be saved. That's basically what the Pharisees were doing. Got to be like me. We've got it. We've got it all figured out. Be like me and you'll be okay. None of us have the right to do that. The gospel's a big tent. There's a lot of variations. There's a lot of differences. And it behooves all of us to be spreading the good news and to be thinking, if I want to talk to my coworker who's Muslim, what might that mean? Um, maybe I shouldn't bring up and offer him half of my ham sandwich. Um, if I'm, you know, if I'm talking to my, to my Hindu friend, they have all kinds of ideas about what it means to be pure or clean. Can I maybe learn some of those and express some of those just so that we can actually have a conversation? So, so the Jerusalem Council is monumental. It's monumental in the history of Christianity. It's monumental for every one of us. It changes the course of, of Christian history. But it's also monumental because it gives us a pattern for how we work through these conflicts. We, we cling to and we are adamant about doctrine. And we can be a little bit flexible about areas of our culture for the sake of unity in the church and the spread of the good news of faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for each of these people that have gathered to get together today. Thank you for their patience as they've listened to this uh, um, explanation of this passage. I pray, Lord, that these principles, which were so very important in the early church, we can recognize they're still important today. Help us to apply them congregationally in our families, in our homes, and in our personal lives in a way that honors you and serves the lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.